and the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us our God. A couple of weeks ago, I was walking out uh, on our um, kind of backyard, and I think I was going to the uh, compost bin. And I was wearing bare feet, and I was walking uh, underneath the clothesline uh, where the peculiar grass has grown quite thick. And it had been raining, uh, so the grass was damp and soft and thick. And the sun had come out, uh, and so there was a delightful smell of grass in the air. And something about that combination of walking barefoot on that grass and with the smell of that grass in the air just transported me back to, well, probably 60 years ago, to running around on my grandparents' bowling green on Vogel Street in Gisborne. I'm sure you do. So they had a house which looked out onto the river. It's right by the bridge. Um, down, down that way, uh, facing the river, was a huge orchard. And out the back was this big bowling green, they called it, uh, with the ditches around it, with thick, thick, thick cocoon grass growing on it. And we would go up there uh, from Wellington to Easter and Christmas and other holidays. And I can remember on this one occasion we'd been to see uh, Daredevil motorcyclist some nights beforehand. And he, he rode his motorcycle through rings of fire and all sorts of crazy stuff. And his ultimate, his ultimate trick was to ride through a plate of glass, uh, a huge sheet of glass with no shirt on. And then he'd show us all the little cuts on his body that he got from that. And so I can remember one day with my red cowboy hat on, because you have to be safe when you're riding a motorbike, <laughs> racing around the bowling green, doing all these daredevil tricks, flying through the air, jumping through rings of fire, going through the plate glass, uh, and just and I haven't thought about it for years, years and years and years. But something about walking across that grass and the smell there just transported me back there. And that sense of life and vitality and energy that, well, no, I wish I had that today. <laughs> but also just the joy of that moment. And, but also the sense of being there with with my mum and dad and maybe my sister, I'm not sure if she was around yet, and being there with my grandparents. That sense of being there with family and all the love that went with that in that moment. It was such a gift being given that memory as I walked out of the compost bin. In our story today, we hear about another gift of Mary's radical gift to Jesus. Now this story in some form or another appears in all of the Gospels which is pretty rare. There's not many stories that appear in all of the Gospels. In Luke's Gospel it happens in a different place. It happens in Galilee. Jesus goes to Simon the Pharisee's house. 
and, uh, and, it's a, and it's a woman of ill repute that does all this. And it's not Judas that gets outraged, it's the hosts. But in this version of the story, it's right at the end, it's the day before Palm Sunday. And it's Mary who is offering this gift, Lazarus's sister. By all accounts, Lazarus and Mary and Martha come from a family of means and position. Many suspect that they were part of the Judean elite. Lazarus's death had brought Jesus back from the relative safety of Galilee. He was already under threat. And when they had decided, to, when he had told his disciples he was going back, to see his friend Lazarus, Thomas had said, and we will go with you, and we will die with you. That's what they knew they were coming back to. And Jesus bringing Lazarus back to life had sealed his fate. <coughs> People were now earnestly planning on how to arrest and execute Jesus. And Jesus knew that. The threat to his life was palpable. And so since the story of Jesus raising Lazarus back to life, Jesus had to stay out of sight, not hiding, but certainly not in public, not being obvious. But now it was the Passover, and Jesus was returning to Jerusalem to take part in that festival. And so... On his way into Jerusalem, Lazarus and his sisters hold a dinner for him. Lazarus, too, is under threat. <coughs> they hold a dinner for him to stand with him as he journeys into Jerusalem and all that awaits him as part of that. So as they welcome him for this meal, there is fear and anxiety in the house. And as I said earlier, this is a house which not too long ago had been filled with the smell and the sound of death, Lazarus's death. Last week we were told the story of scandalous joy, the outrageous father who doesn't wait for what his rude and wasteful son has to say, but rushes out to embrace him with love and welcome, and joyously throws a party and celebration. A story of abundant joy that led to rules being broken and welcome offered when none was deserved. Much to the anger of the older son, who could not take part in the joy and was lost in duty. This week we have another story of scandalous joy, of Mary, part of the household, part of the family of the household, taking on the role of a slave or a servant. And not just washing Jesus' feet, but anointing them with expensive nard a central gift of love, and then releasing her hair to wipe his feet. 
in doing so, she breaks so many rules. It is shocking that she would do this. Imagine a traditional Muslim woman today letting her hair out in public. That's the kind of shocking action this is. They live in the same world. That's Jesus' world. The same rules applied in his world as still apply to traditional Muslim women today. It is simply a disgrace that she would do that. And she is bringing disgrace on her family. As Mary anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair, a number of the men gathered there would have felt very uncomfortable. Some of them would have been deeply offended by what she was doing. Judas was. He said so. But he disguises his offence with feigned concern for how that money might have been better spent on the poor. Jesus, John makes it clear that he really didn't care about the poor. Whether that's true or whether that was just John's propaganda, I'm not sure. But he is portrayed as someone who hides his greed by pretending to be concerned. And Jesus wasn't interested in fake concern. Jesus stood in the biblical tradition of the Mosaic law and the prophets, which holds the poor at the centre of the life of the community. But sadly, over the centuries, Jesus' comments to Judas have been used to justify us joining Judas in not caring for the poor. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Which, interestingly, can equally be translated as have the poor with you always or keep the poor among you always. The translators have gone mostly for you always have the poor with you. But that's not the only way it can be translated. And in fact, those Latin translations have the poor with you always echoes Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, 11, which says, since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbour in your land. That is the heart of the Mosaic law. Generosity. God's generosity. God's compassion. But that is not what has been taught down through the centuries, including by wealthy church leaders. They have used Jesus' retort to justify ignoring the plight of the poor and accepting them as simply as the way that God likes it. In fact, one of our favourite hymns. Uh, oh, we all sang Sunday school. Uh, all things great and beautiful. And we chop out the last verse, but that one talks about how the Lord is in his manner and the poor are out there and that's the way it should be. We don't sing that verse anymore. Or worse, 
It's been used to suggest that any action towards the poor is a distraction from the true Christian duty of worshipping God. The thing about that is, well, Jesus came from a poor family who lived in a poor community in Galilee, a poor part of the world. Galileans were looked down on by Judeans as poor hillbillies. When I wrote that word, Microsoft Word popped with a line in the there and I clicked on it and it said, this word infers social uh, socio-economic bias. You might like to choose another word. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the whole point of this word. But thank you, Microsoft. Jesus was one of the poor. We keep forgetting that. We keep making them nice and respectable. Jesus isn't suggesting an either or here. In all the Gospels, Jesus stood in the tradition of the prophets, particularly Isaiah, and is always portrayed as on the side of the poor. It's one of the things that gets him into so much trouble, especially in Luke's Gospel. So Mary's action wasn't an either or, it was simply a scandalous act of love and gratitude for being found and freed. And she had been found and freed. Freed from all the rules that said her place was in the kitchen with her sister Martha and not with Jesus being a disciple. Her place was to keep her hair hidden and only reveal it to the men of her family, her husband, and to stay hidden. In Jesus she found someone where she could be herself, a disciple. And she saw the world very differently because of that, and acted out of deep generosity and deep joy and thankfulness as a result of that. A scandalous, scandalous gift of love. She offers this gift of love, love and life to this man who will face down those who seek his death. Mary's response to Jesus didn't preclude any equally scandalous and generous act to others who are poor, and maybe we could say it invites it. Her gift was not just for that moment. As Jesus walked into Jerusalem the next day, Palm Sunday, the fragrance would have walked with him, followed him, and followed those who walked with him, reminding him of the joy and the love and the life offered to him the night before. As he was arrested, tried, beaten and whipped, as he dragged his cross to Golgotha, I wonder what memory of that night offered him as he what the memory of that night offered him as he struggled on. As he hung, dying, with the woman gathered at the foot of the cross, including maybe Mary, and the man who promised to die with him nowhere to be seen. I wonder what that memory offered him. And as he drew his last breath, I wonder if he could still smell that night 
This was a gift offered to him to help him to help carry him in all that lay ahead. It was a gift of love and hope and life in the face of hate and fear and death. So I wonder in our darkest moments, what are the gifts that sustain us? What are the memories of life that sustain us, that help us? What are the moments that remind us that we are being held by love? And I wonder how we offer those same kinds of moments to others. So this means, how might we pay attention to those memories and opportunities and all that they offer us? So we'll pause for a moment. And uh, you can either sit in silence and reflect on those questions or if you want to, you can talk to your neighbour about it.